This is the MLW Radio Network. Everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. My name is Mike Freeland. It has been a while since uh, we've all sat down together and covered the story of ECW as we have been reading in our book. We last left off in Chapter 6. We are now going into Chapter 7. I do appreciate you guys being so patient and hanging tight with me during all this. A lot of things have been going on since we left the story in Chapter 6. Chapter 7 is known as Extreme Defection. Extreme Defection. So the first thing that we're going to start off with here is back in 1995, ECW um, was still kind of a, a smaller entity in the wrestling industry. They weren't really prominent amongst a lot of wrestling fans. Predominantly, they were known in the Northeast. A lot of fans in the Philadelphia, the New Jersey, uh, the New York area were more familiar with them. But the two main companies, which people deemed to be the two main companies, was WWF and WCW. And at this time, we were kind of in a lull in the wrestling business. And due to that, both companies decided that they were going to need to make some changes to not only draw more of an audience, but they were trying to reinvent their product and and make it something more that people would be interested in, not only wanting to attend, but wanting to spend money on as well. So it was interesting. WCW decided to go ahead and start doing more pay-per-views. Then the WWF decided to do more pay-per-views. And it kept going back and forth until eventually we reached the point where there was going to be a pay-per-view every single month. So ECW realized from a financial perspective they were not going to be able to to run the kind of schedule and obviously have a pay-per-view every single month, but they were doing everything they could to make their product as appealing as possible, but also trying to separate it from uh, and create some level of differentiation between themselves and the two other companies. And the big thing that ECW was able to do was with their television production. Their television production consisted of a two-man crew. It was Ron and Charlie, and and they're often referred to just as Ron and Charlie. Um, I'm going to pronounce their names here. I do hope I get these correct. Ron Buffone and Charlie uh, Bruiz were the two people who were the main catalyst behind ECW TV. So when you go onto YouTube or you go onto the WWE Network and you you check out some old ECW programming, you're going to realize that it looks much different than what a WWF superstars looked like or uh, any type of programming WCW Saturday Night. It looked different. It looked edgy. It looked cutting edge. Uh, I realize I'm using the same superlatives here, but it just looked different. It looked grittier. It looked like it was something you're not supposed to be watching. You know, I often described it as as the porn version of wrestling. It, It went to the places that both other companies weren't willing to go to. They also used some really, really exciting new music that was hitting the scene, and they associated that with their characters. So, you know, when you had guys like Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan and Mr. Perfect, and the list goes on and on, coming out to songs that were created by Jim Johnston, you you had in ECW superstars that were coming out to music that people already knew. It was also always 
already culturally accepted and it was stuff that people would listen to in their in their spare time or in their car so it definitely was something that resonated with ECW fans but getting back to uh getting back to Ron and Charlie these two guys did everything they could and I feel like in a lot of ways they don't get enough credit for what they did because even though Paul was was behind the scenes you know driving this whole thing they definitely were able to put their DNA into what they believed they wanted ECW television to look like. And there was no quote-unquote uh, studio, but the two men would meet um, in the basement of Ron's family home where they actually had a big ECW banner that was actually hanging up in the basement. Uh, it was actually covering the washer and dryer of Ron's parents' basement, and they would film the wrestlers' promos down there. Um, if you remember the movie Beyond the Mat, and you remember where they were doing things in a basement in specifically, uh, Ron's mom was ironing. If you have not seen Beyond the Mat, I highly recommend that you go and you check that out. Great movie. It, it definitely gives you an insight into the wrestling business that we hadn't previously seen. The, the curtain had really been pulled back at that point in time, and we saw the, the, the good side of wrestling. We also saw the ugly side of wrestling, but... This is one of the things that really differentiated ECW from WWE. You know, there was no corporate office. There was no Titan Tower. There was no big television studio. It was, you know, Ron's parents' basement. So that's where they did a lot of it. And they did a lot of their editing on some pretty outdated computers. But the big thing that not only Paul was trying to convey at this time, but I think both Ron and Charlie were trying to do is they were trying to say, we might not have the budget that e that WWE or WCW has, but what I think we do have is we have the talent, we have the passion, we have the hunger, and at the end of the day, just like anything, you know, you chase trying to be more creative than the other guy. It is not always about the equipment, it's about how you use the equipment that you have. So they made some incredible uh, cuts. They filmed things with two different cameras. Sometimes it was a little bit difficult, and sometimes footage was able to be used. Sometimes it wasn't able to be used, but they did the best they could. They spliced it together, much like the way Paul Heyman describes as a Pulp Fiction type of way of editing. So they did things that were very organic, very natural, and it definitely appealed to that more independent, hardcore, I don't really want cartoon character-y type of format that WCW and the WWF was doing. So the pay-per-view director was named Michael Vetter, and he said ECW was groundbreaking, but it was groundbreaking out of necessity. They didn't have the same money, but in terms of being innovative in feeling like each and every show was something special, they knocked it out of the park. Ron's parents, who we talked about before, Ron Buffon's parents, would open their house to the wrestlers of ECW. They were able to go ahead and use a small computer that was in the basement to go ahead and edit these programs on there as well. And there was another guy named Brett Schwann who actually was the person who designed the first ECW website. So let's think about this. Back in 1995, you know, they're in a parent's basement. They're putting together ECW programming with Paul Heyman. They're cutting promos in the guy's basement. And they're also launching a website where they're able to at least get the word out a little bit. I mean, the, the internet, as you know, in 1995 was very much in its infancy. But they were doing everything they could to try to 
get as many people exposed to the product as possible. Um, they were the first promotion to really advertise hard on the internet, Schwann would go on to say. The two big companies had more money to spend on ads, but early ECW realized that hard work and time put in would definitely compensate for the fact that their budget wasn't as big. Now, the early ECW website was, was kind of primitive as far as what websites look like today. It pretty much just had results from ECW shows, uh, biographies on the wrestlers, and the history of the company, and that was about it. Um, they, weren't even, they weren't even able to sell merchandise yet on the website, but soon they were going to start doing that not too far down the road. And like I said, ECW would use popular music that was going on right now, and that's another thing WWF and WCW were not doing. They were basically having an in-house composer create those where Paul decided, you know what, let's make something more universally appealing and let's make things a little bit more interesting to fans who may not know about wrestling, but they hear this music being played, so maybe that might kind of tie them and bring them in. When we fast forward to June, so the summer of 1995, uh, rumors started going around that there was some issues. There was some tension between uh, Gordon and Heyman. Uh, Todd Gordon tried to downplay all these rumors, saying that things have been blown out of proportion between the two and that their differences, yet they did have them, were creative and that they always could come to some level of uh, agreement between things here. Um, they both had different views of what they thought ECW should be. You know, Todd Gordon wanted ECW to continue to grow, but Todd definitely was very content with ECW being a product that was predominantly a territorial-based, Philadelphia-based wrestling promotion. He did not have the high aspirations of wanting to take on Vince McMahon or take on Eric Bischoff at that time. So, And that's kind of where things started to change because Paul was one of those individuals who said, you know what, I want to take on these guys. Win, lose, or draw, I want to try to see if I can compete with these guys. And I think that's the one thing that really made Paul Heyman successful and even though he didn't always come out on the winning end, he challenged himself. He pushed himself. He tried to make ECW more than what it was. He didn't want it to always be looked upon as just this small little niche promotion that existed inside South Philadelphia. So the one thing Paul definitely knew he had to do, which the two other companies were not doing. The other two companies were repackaging people all the time, and they weren't really creating new talent. And the ones that they did repackage, they weren't really repackaging them in a way that would appeal to the audience. So Paul realized, you know what, i got to create some stars. i got to do something that's different. So the first project Paul worked on was a repackaging, but it was done really, really well. And that was the Tasmaniac. So for a lot of you, if you are ECW hardcore fans, you remember the Tasmaniac. Obviously, he had the longer hair. He had the outfit that kind of looked like a caveman type of deal. He was a wild guy. And that was that was what he was. But Paul, once again, being a forward thinker, started to realize the landscape of entertainment, specifically with sporting events, was changing. With the advent of UFC, shoot fighting really started to become something that was very, very popular. Um, UFC was in its infancy, so he decided, you know what, I'm going to take this Tasmaniac character, and I'm going to shorten this. We're going to call him Taz, but we're going to make Taz 
a shooter. We're going to make him a real fighter. And we are going to build this guy up to where he is just this machine. We're going to get way away from this gimmicky type of Tasmaniac character. And it worked. So instead of Joey Styles just calling a regular match when Taz first debuted as the new version of Taz, they actually brought in a UFC or an MMA commentator. And the commentator was actually able to talk about what Taz was doing in the ring and talk about the arm bars and the moves and the submissions. And that's really what started to build the credibility of Taz because people started to realize, oh, wow, this UFC thing over here, this is the real deal. And and this guy Taz in here, he's doing these things. And man, he's the real deal. So Paul wanted to start to really start to make wrestling fans question whether or not Taz was a real shoot fighter or not. And I think that worked really, really well. So Heyman also, along with repackaging Taz and creating this new persona for him, was looking for more talent. And one thing that he was wanting to do was go ahead and start to build up his tag team division. Now, in 1995, as we know, Jim Cornette ran and operated Smoky Mountain Wrestling. So for some of you younger fans who may not be familiar with Smoky Mountain Wrestling, here is a quick quick little rundown. Smoky Mountain Wrestling was a company that was created in the South. Jim Cornette had always wanted to go ahead and have uh, an independent promotion that was separate from WWE. He believed in the Southern style wrestling. He definitely enjoyed the times of the territories of the Crockett's and of the different territories that were in Tennessee. And you had the ones that were in Georgia and you had the Carolinas as well. Well, Jim wanted to still breathe life into the territorial basis of what wrestling was, and he created Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Well, there was a tag team in Smoky Mountain Wrestling that was super white hot, and they were heels. And that's exactly what Paul was looking for. So Paul decided to go ahead and try to reach out to these guys. This was Mustafa and New Jack, the gangsters. So the gangsters were doing their thing down in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Paul liked what they were doing. It was very edgy. It had a lot of appeal to what was happening in society today. And they decided to to talk to Paul. Paul had interest in them. They sat down and started discussing what it would be like if they were to come into ECW, which was extreme, which definitely was on par with what they were doing down in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Now, for some of you, you do realize this. For some of you, you may not. New Jack... The, the wrestler New Jack, who we know was involved in the mass transit situation. We know him from his numerous shoot interviews he's done all over the internet. A lot of people think he's crazy. And I don't know the man per se, but I can tell you right now, if, if he is, this is just all in character, then he's done a very good job. So Jerome Young is his real name. And before Jerome actually got into wrestling, he was actually a bounty hunter. And he has two justifiable homicides. Uh, He states were in self-defense when he was in the line of duty as a bounty hunter. And you'll find out a little bit more about him if you, again, watch Beyond the Mat. He was a very violent character, and Paul thought that this was going to be perfect with extreme championship wrestling because there was the willingness to bleed. New Jack not only took a lot of risks, he used a lot of foreign objects, and Paul just saw this as a match made in heaven. So 
even though New Jack was a little crazy, um, Paul realized that this would definitely be a selling point to get people into the ECW arena and subsequent shows around the country if he had performers that people were talking about. Now, New Jack was one of those dudes who... Um, you had to be careful when he came out to the ring. And, and it was he wasn't just New Jack that you had to be careful for. There was the Dudleys as well. You had to be careful. And what I mean by that is ECW had a pensity for going out and fighting in the crowd. Now, if you watch wrestling today, WWE, if you watch AEW, Impact, whatever you want to watch, Ring of Honor, you, you do see that that happens a lot more nowadays, you know. Wrestlers will go out into the audience and they'll brawl and they'll fight each other and the whole nine yards. Well, that really hadn't been happening as far as WCW or the WWF back in that time frame. And ECW realized that if we're going to continue to make this cutting edge, if we're going to continue to make this interesting, we have to take the show to the fans themselves and literally take the show into the audience. And when it comes to that, you got to be careful. A lot of wrestling fans may or may not be aware of this, but you have to get out of the way or you will get knocked down when wrestlers are brawling in the audience. So with that being said, the Gangsters and Public Enemy battled in Tampa in 1995, and it ended up being one of the most rewatched and replayed clips in ECW history because, once again, this was the infamous night after the two teams brawled that the public enemy invited all the fans into the ring and so many people got into the ring that the ring ended up collapsing under the weight of everybody. Everybody was waving their hands. It, it makes for a great visual, but when you break the ring, it doesn't necessarily come across very good with management. July 1st, it was the Hardcore Heaven 1995 pay-per-view, and now we're introducing somebody as a character who is transitioning from being in one capacity into another. Bill Alfonso, who is an individual who is one of the most legendary referees of all time. I mean, not only from the NWA, not only from WCW, not only from the WWF, not only from ECW, but at this point in time, Bill Alfonso was a top heel in Paul Heyman's ECW. So what happened was they decided to kind of start to segue him into more of a managerial role, a character that Bill slid into beautifully. Bill had so much heat on him, and I hope to get a chance to bring him on the main show, that it was ridiculous. And obviously we know that Bill would go on to managed Sabu and managed Taz, and, and he did an amazing job with that, but he was so good. You know, at the time, he was 130 pounds soaking wet, but the things that he could do in and outside of that ring and the abuse that he would take was, was unbelievable. So let's go ahead and let's kind of take an example of what was going on here. So ECW Commissioner Todd Gordon said that Bill Alfonso was going to be the referee for a Taipei death match that was going to be happening between Ian and Axel Rotten. So a Taipei death match, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but let's go ahead and let's let's go over it again here. A Taipei death match is a match where it's basically no holds barred. It is extremely violent. It's extremely bloody, extremely gory. So each man had their hands wrapped up in double-sided adhesive tape. So this is Ian and Axel Rotten. Both hands 
their fists taped. I'm looking at pictures right now, and it's just it's unbelievable. With double-sided tape, and then they would dip those taped fists into piles of broken glass. And these would end up resulting in some of the bloodiest matches in ECW history. And one thing Axel Rotten would be quoted as saying was, and I quote, that was 100% real broken glass. It was all glass from beer bottles, he said. We had fun making the piles of broken glass and dipping our hands into them. But first we had to drink all that beer. Now the match itself was painful to watch, and it was painful both guys to work in. Axel would go on to say, The one thing that Ian and I had was we trusted each other. We knew we were out there, but we weren't trying to hurt each other intentionally. But it was pretty brutal, because at times we were really hitting each other full blast. No holding back whatsoever. Well, less than three minutes into this match, Bill Alfonso decided to call for the bell and stop the match because of the blood. Which obviously was a scripted angle into the match itself to get heat on Alfonso. Well, Todd Gordon comes out and orders the match to be restarted and that it was going to have a new referee. So they went on to grind glass into each other's face, into each other's arms, and it became pretty crazy. The finish came when Ian tried to pile drive his brother onto a pile of thumbtacks which he had dumped on the mat. Instead, Axel backdropped Ian and escaped the move by turning Ian's back into a bloody pincushion. So... Many times in wrestling, we hear people say, well, I'm going to steal that. Or, you know what, you see things that happen, and then years later, you see them happen again, and you're like, well, I wonder where they got that idea from. Well, that spot was Mick Foley's. He would end up reenacting that in his famous 1998 Hell in a Cell match against The Undertaker, when obviously Foley fell from the top of the cage, and he crashed through a ringside table. He also went ahead and took a backdrop onto the thumbtacks. Speaking of the aforementioned Mick Foley in 1995, it was interesting for him in ECW as well. He was known for cutting some of the most amazing scathing promos in ECW history. One of the most memorable was a promo in which Foley brought up a moment from his babyface days when he was fighting Terry Funk and he looked in the crowd and read a sign that said Kane Dewey in reference to his young son. Well, Foley was so disgusted by that that he decided that he hated everything that was hardcore. So basically, once again, you're taking elements of what the fans are bringing to the show and you're incorporating that into your storyline. That's what Paul wanted to do. Paul was a strong believer in that things that the fans would do, he could end up using in angles. He could end up using the momentum and the opinions of fans to somehow incorporate that and the wrestlers would interact with them as well. You know, we would read uh, later on here that Tracy Smothers would interact with the wrestling audience as well. So would Francine. And it wasn't anything that was intentionally meant to be scathing or the fans weren't trying to intentionally be assholes. But it was just part of the whole thing. The fans were just as much a part of the show as the performers were. So as Paul was working on, obviously, repackaging Taz, bringing in the gangsters from Smoky Mountain Wrestling, having the Taipei death matches between Ian Axel Rotten, having McFoley cut some of his most legendary promos, he really started to gain some momentum here. He was doing things and using the resources that he had to him. Well, another project that he decided to do was he wanted to create an underdog. He wanted to create somebody, and that somebody was Mikey Whipwreck. 
Mike we- Mikey Whipwreck continued to pick up steam in August of 95 when he had an upset win over one of the top heels in ECW, the Sandman. Now, the stipulation was that the loser of the match would receive lashes with a Singapore cane. So, if this sounds familiar, it should be because the Sandman obviously used the Singapore cane earlier on against Tommy Dreamer in a moment that is in ECW lore as being one of the most gut-wrenching, surreal moments that we would have seen in wrestling at that time. Well, they were looking to, to kind of tap into that moment again and do this, but things didn't go exactly the way they went the first time. Paul decided that he was going to throw a little bit of a swerve in it. So Sandman was supposed to get caned by Mikey. However, that didn't exactly happen. So Woman would end up stopping Mikey before he could actually finish doing his caning of the Sandman. The distraction... Uh, led the Sandman into beating Mikey. Well, this caused a lot of backlash, especially with certain TV outlets who were carrying ECW programming. And the reason why it created such an outlash was because of the reaction that woman had to Mikey's beating. What had happened was she was so incensed and she seemed so excited um, that Mikey was getting beaten like this that... A lot of television programmers thought that this was going way too far. It was one thing to beat somebody, but to get so much pleasure and enjoyment out of watching somebody else uh, get beat this way, it, it really started to take them back. So the Sunshine Network uh, started to voice their outrage, but the conflicting uh, parties decided to ultimately come to an agreement, and they decided to stay in business with each other. Uh, a woman by the name of Dana Stitz, an executive with Florida Sunshine Network during the 90s, said her network was, like many, uh, perfectly happy to deal with content problems as long as the checks continued to clear and money and revenue continued to roll in. She says, Paul told me it was extreme, and it certainly was. It certainly was a success, but it is what it is. The big boys were out, and they were playing ECW hardcore style. So, not all networks were happy with the way ECW was doing things. Not all television outlets were happy with the amount of violence. But the Sunshine Network decided that because Paul was so open and honest with them about what they were to expect, that nothing that they had received was ever something that caught them by surprise. Now, they did tell them at some points that if the crowd was chanting obscenities or obviously things that Paul was not able to control, that they would obviously not be able to air those portions of it, that they would air a previously aired episode of ECW television for the simple fact that it just wasn't acceptable to try to bleep out all the obscenities that some of the fans were saying. So, and it wasn't just that as well. The Sunshine Network and some other outlets also had issues with the kids in the audience. The kids giving the wrestlers the middle finger, that was also something that was not really looked upon as a positive thing. There were times where they couldn't air huge portions of an episode of ECW television. So what they did, they usually contacted Paul and said, you need to send us something else so we can go ahead and air that. If not... They would always have a old rerun that they would air in its replace. So I think that's interesting to look at from that perspective because, you know, when we talk about the the production 
that went into ECW. It was great. I think they did so many good things. But the one thing that you got to keep in mind is that you can never control the audience. The audience is going to do what they want. So Ron and Charlie did the best they could. But once again, on an old computer, you, you don't have the abilities to really uh, edit the crowds out without missing some of the commentary from Joey Styles and having long pauses where there's nothing to be heard. So that definitely can make editing a lot more difficult. Nowadays, we know that there's a, a delay on a live feed where they'll just go ahead or they'll just bleep it out or sometimes, depending on what time the, the show airs, they'll just let it slide. So I thought that was interesting. In 1995, in September, the second Nitro was about to air, and there was going to be a familiar face on that show, and that was Sabu. With the money situations happening in ECW, Sabu decided that he was being lured to another promotion. He decided to go ahead and try working with WCW, but unfortunately, WCW just didn't know what to do with Sabu. So, after a very brief stint, Sabu would return in early November to ECW. Now, WCW had a veteran star in Steve Austin. Well, Steve Austin wasn't being utilized very well either in 1995, so Steve decided he was going to make a jump. He decided to go over to ECW. Now, keep in mind, he was only there for nine months, but he was advertised as superstar Steve. And Steve Austin, even though he was only there for a short period of time, was allowed to creatively do what he wanted. He was able to cut promos. And as if you remember on the WWE Network where you have seen on YouTube, he would cut promos on Eric Bischoff. He did impersonations of Hulk Hogan. He did a lot of different things here. And the one thing that Steve Austin really started to do was it was an ECW when he started using certain phrases that would become popular when he became Stone Cold Steve Austin. So when Steve decided to leave ECW after a very short stint and head to the World Wrestling Federation, there was something about the Sandman gimmick that he really liked. So years later, when Steve was the stone-cold, beer-drinking Hellraiser, a lot of ECW fans scratched their heads and said, wait a minute, we've seen that act before. To say that Steve Austin was 100% original with his stone-cold character can be debated amongst the wrestling fans, but you cannot disagree, and you cannot obviously avoid the fact that a lot of things that Steve Austin did, did come from the things he saw with the Sandman. Towards the end of the summer of 1995, ECW lost some more people. Losing Chris Benoit was not good. They also lost Dean Malenko, and they also lost Eddie Guerrero. All three wrestlers had finally reached deals with WCW. That would allow them to continue to wrestle, obviously, their lucrative Japanese tours, and they were set to make a lot more money than what they were making in ECWs. But it didn't stop there. Ian Rotten quit the company shortly after that, and he decided to start up his own independent wrestling federation, the IWA Mid-South Wrestling. So Heyman had obviously had something in Steve Austin, lost Steve Austin. He obviously, you know, lost Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko and Eddie Guerrero, and now he's lost one of his hardcore wrestlers to a promotion that he himself was creating. So Heyman was looking for something else that would set ECW aside and set them apart from the WWE and 
WCW. So Heyman started talking to Conan. He was one of Mexico's biggest stars, and he was a booker for AAA. He was a young um, performer who had a lot of creative ideas, and Conan and Heyman started talking, and they first actually had introduced themselves back when both of them were in WCW in 1990 during the Starcade pay-per-view. Conan said they hit it off back then, and the relationship picked up after they reconnected in 1995. Conan had thrown out some ideas to Paul about bringing in some Lucha Libre stars into ECW. Guys like Rey Mysterio, guys like Psychosis, and Paul Heyman was very open to that. He was very interested in that. And he started bringing those guys in, and things really started to change. ECW not only had your technical wrestlers, but it also had your brawlers, but it also had the influx of the Lucha Libres, which was a big, big turning point in the world of wrestling. Because when you think about it, it wasn't too long after that that WCW, obviously under the broadcasting knowledge of the Professor Mike Tenay, would have a lot of Lucha Libre stars on Monday Nitro. So that was a big turning point in the wrestling landscape, was bringing in wrestlers from different countries. And Conan, who I do not believe gets enough credit for the things he's contributed to the business, not only as a performer, not only as a booker, but somebody who has introduced so many different talents to the American wrestling audience. So, as if that wasn't enough change happening in 1995, Shane Douglas quit as well. Shane Douglas decided that he would take his talents to the World Wrestling Federation. So Paul's gone through a lot of changes so far here in 1995. People, A lot of people are leaving. Paul's still trying to redefine and make ECW successful. Now, I will tell you guys this in kind of a, a slight pause here. This is a chapter, a portion of the chapter, that I thought was really, really interesting when it talks about everything that Shane Douglas went through when the courtship was happening between he and and the World Wrestling Federation. I may read some direct quotes from the, the book as well. I may read a longer portion directly from the book. And the reason why I want to do this is because I think this is incredible. I read this numerous times, and I think this is important to know. Uh, Shane would later say that his move to the World Wrestling Federation in 1995 was the worst, one of the worst mistakes of his career. He says, and I quote, I would have never left. I was one of those guys who drank the Kool-Aid, referring to his time in ECW. I believed in ECW, Douglas said. When I left the WWF in 1990, because we all remember that Douglas was in the WWF before he was in ECW, it was because my dad had emphysema. Vince, who had always treated me well and paid me well, told me the door was always open if I ever wanted to return. Shane says, so I fast forward to 1995. After a few attempts by Patterson, talent executive Jim Ross called Douglas and implied the generous offer might not be on the table for much longer. He said timing was everything and that they could put Vince's magic in my ECW character. Once I started listening to all the bullshit, they really roped me in. McMahon was used to getting his way, Douglas said, and the WWF recruiting machine was smooth. Douglas mentioned he and his wife who was a fan of Broadway plays, would end up being flown up to New York and they had two tickets to Miss Saigon, front row. And the hotel they stayed at was also very nice. 
Douglas's wife accompanied him to the contract meetings with McMahon, who told both of them what a tremendous opportunity this would be, and she had some questions for McMahon. She told McMahon, my husband worked here five years ago, and your people said that you had nothing else for him. Right now, I have my husband, who's home five nights a week. He's making $100,000 a year from ECW and another $45,000 from being a school teacher. What can you offer us that's going to make it better than that? Douglas said McMahon's response still has stuck in his crawl all these years later. He took my wife's hand and said, You have my word as a gentleman. I will make your husband a very wealthy man. McMahon went on to say that it would not be unusual for someone in the slot that he had planned for Douglas to earn between $350,000 and $550,000 a year. Now, for somebody like Shane Douglas, he grew up in the projects in Pittsburgh, and he was stunned by the lavish courting of the WWF. But from the bottle of Don Perignon waiting for he and his wife when they returned to their hotel room from Miss Saigon, all the new clothes the massive chocolate-covered strawberries delivered to their suite, something was just not sitting well with Douglas. He knew deep down inside, I don't think I can trust Vince McMahon, but I took the deal anyway. If he's going to try to fuck me, he's sparing no expense doing it. Douglas called practically everyone he knew who he had worked for the WWF to see what they had thought. He talked to the Road Warriors, he talked to Jake Roberts, and he talked to ten more guys, and they all said that's pretty much what they told us, and he made us rich. Douglas took the deal despite not feeling very comfortable, and he had a knot in his gut. Douglas was going to be renamed Dean Douglas and given a gimmick of an evil school teacher. Now, the gimmick was lousy, according to Douglas, and in less than 48 hours after starting in the WWF, Douglas felt that he was set up to fail. Now, this is an exact quote from Shane. I was known as the guy who was good on the mic, Shane said. However, the first time I would go in to do my promos as this new Dean Douglas, I was standing there ready to go, and now all of a sudden stuff started scro scrolling down the screen in front of me. I said, what's that? They said, you're supposed to read this. This is going to be your promo. Now, the WWF Brain Trust decided that they were going to go ahead and have their performers now start reading off of a teleprompter. Now, Shane was not a big fan of this, and his takes using the teleprompter didn't go off very well. Obviously, someone who had not used them very often. Shane decided that, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do it a little bit different. Shane decided to cut away from using the teleprompter and cut his own promo. And just as he was about to start his promo, Vince McMahon had to step out of the room. Shane finished the promo, and everyone loved it. McMahon came back in after he had taken the phone call and asked all of the agents what they thought of the promo that Shane had just done not using the teleprompter. Everyone had agreed with Vince. No, we think he should have used the teleprompter. Shane was startled. Everyone had previously told him they loved it. McMahon steps back in the room, and they all sighed with him. They all did a 180. Man, Shane said, I knew right then and there. I called Paul. I was furious. I told him to get me the fuck out of here. Douglas had found himself out of favor because Shawn Michaels and the Click were very close to Vince McMahon at the time, and he realized very quickly that his role within the company was not going to be very much at all. 
with the click being in as much control as they were at the time, Douglas being frustrated with the promos that he was not able to be himself, the producers siding with Vince, he found himself out of favor, which definitely was not good in a place like the World Wrestling Federation. Unfortunately, Douglas was not a member of the group, therefore he wasn't going to be used as prominently. In 1995, the WWF had not yet started offering guaranteed contracts. Wrestlers were paid in large part based on their spot on the roster, which, because of the click, Shane believes that he was not going to be prominently featured on the shows. Not as much as Vince McMahon had originally promised him. Also, paychecks were far lower than what McMahon had originally promised him. Shane would go on to say, I spent four months on the road. Never any time at home, and I was able to deposit a grand total of $6,400 during that period, Douglas said. My wife was furious. Every time we talked, she would say, so where is all this money? After the four-month mark, Douglas decided that he had had enough and decided to talk to Vince. I went to Vince and I said, we've got a major fucking problem. I've got to give you my notice, Shane said. Vince couldn't believe it. He was stunned. He looked at me and said, but I've got a million dollars invested into this character. Shane would reply with, where is it? It's not in my paycheck. Looking back a decade later, Shane still holds bitterness over his WWF experience. He would go on to say, I understand everyone has to make a living, but when you fuck somebody just to make a dollar, that's something else entirely. He said, F them. You know what? I'm not perfect. I'm certainly no saint, but can honestly say that there's no one out there who can say I deliberately ever fuck them over. There was never a time I promised to do something and lied to screw someone over. So that was a big portion that I read uh, from the chapter, but I just thought it was so important because it was powerful. Like, you know, Shane and his wife get flown up there. They get tickets to Miss Saigon, front row. They get brand new clothes. They stay in the nicest hotel. They have Don Perignon. They have chocolate-covered strawberries. They're told in a contract meeting that he'll make between three hundred dollars and $550,000. He holds Shane's wife's hand and promises her that all these things are going to happen. Then Shane basically ends up, you know, finding out that none of this, or if any of it, a very small portion of it, was actually accurate, actually true. And you know what? There's so many people that I've heard this story from that they've been told one thing and then it changes. You know, originally creative has something for you and then all of a sudden things change and sorry, creative has nothing left for you. So... It's just one of those deals where, regardless of what you think of Shane Douglas, I don't think this is right for anyone to do this. So, continuing on. So, for most of the mid-90s, both McMahon and Eric Bischoff were paying Heyman. A lot of people don't know that. So, Heyman was the unofficial talent consultant and developer. So, let's kind of go back in this and, and talk about this. There's a lot of talk that... Paul Heyman was being paid by WWE. Now, sometimes I believe even Paul would say, no, I was never paid. I never received a dime from them. Maybe Paul himself himself did not get a dime, but the company of ECW got money. And the company of ECW got money from Eric Bischoff's WCW as well. So when you we look back at all of this, ECW was the NXT of that time. They were looked at as the promotion that was in business or in bed, however you want to refer to it, with both major companies, and that Paul had an understanding and agreement 
with both major players, Vince and Eric, that when the time came, he would go ahead and leverage them and let them go to work for the other promotions in return for financial compensation to keep ECW afloat. So how do you feel about that? I know Tommy Dreamer has a lot of feelings about this. And Tommy even said for a long time he had a lot of um, ill will towards the way everything ended in ECW. But you know what? Business is business. People close to Heyman at the time believed that the two big companies had Heyman on a retainer so he could serve as a sort of an informal talent advisor. Heyman's relationship with WCW gave wrestler Brian Pillman inspiration to pull off something in 1996 that would transform the idea of working in the wrestling industry. So remember when uh, Brian Pillman showed up on ECW and everybody lost their minds because they're like, what's going on here? This guy's crazy. He's the loose cannon. All of that had been predetermined behind the scenes of what was going to be happening. They decided that it would be a good idea to go ahead and move him over to ECW, see what was going to happen with that, see how that played out. And obviously it did very, very well because, as we know, Brian Pillman, when he became the Loose Cannon character, was much more popular than the Flying Brian character. Well, as things go in wrestling, nothing ever quite stays the same. So Kevin Sullivan is over at this point in time, and he's the booker in WCW. Well, his wife, Nancy, is still in ECW. Well, there's a working relationship, obviously, between WCW and ECW and ECW and the WWF. Well, Conan was working in ECW, but he realized pretty quickly that the money wasn't going to be as lucrative for him in ECW as it would have been if he was working for one of the other two companies. So Nancy obviously talked to her husband, Kevin, and they helped broker a deal that got Conan out of ECW and they sent him over to WCW. Conan says this, and I quote, We want you to work alongside Hulk Hogan, Conan said. I knew this would be an opportunity to make a lot of money, and I was told I'd be working alongside the Hulk in this new Mexico-U.S. superpowers angle. They were offering really good money, and when I was asked if I could bring in my other friends, my other luchadors like Rey Mysterio, La Parca, Psychosis, and the rest of the workhorses with me, they said yes. Conan said telling Paul Heyman about his plans to depart for WCW was one of the hardest personal moves he had made. Now, Heyman did not take Conan's departure well, and Conan said that after years had gone by that things eventually got patched up, but Paul didn't want to see Conan leave ECW because of the big influence that he had on their audience, but unfortunately, with the relationship that was believed to be going on, there wasn't much that they could do about that. Paul continued to lose talent back and forth to the different promotions, but he still never quite gave up on the fact that he was trying to make ECW a successful company. Now, I could tell you this right now, when it comes to ECW, I give them a lot of credit, maybe even more credit than the WWF or WCW at that time, because it really looked like Paul Heyman was the guy who was the driving force behind a lot of the uh, new stars that were coming into American wrestling, such as the Eddie Guerreros and obviously Chris Benoit, who had wrestled over in Japan a lot. He became very prominent when he was in ECW, and then obviously when he went over to WCW, and then after that went over to the WWF. So you can see Paul's fingerprints on a lot of things. 
In early 96, Woman was on her way out of ECW as well. She was headed back to WCW. Heyman booked her in an angle in which um, she was trying to recruit Sandman and Too Cold Scorpio to be with her. Instead, they carried her out of the ECW arena and dumped her outside. She was then written off of television. With Woman's departure still very fresh in the minds of ECW fans and Paul Heyman alike, Paul decided once again that he needed to come up with some more stars to create. And the one he decided to create was the Dudleys. But it wasn't just the fact that it was the Dudleys. It was a Raven idea. Raven, who does not get as much credit as he deserves for being a very creative mind in the wrestling business. So the idea of the group was that they all shared a common father, and their father was a traveling wrestler. Now, the originals in the Dudleys were Dudley Dudley, Snot Dudley, who uh, the family grew to include dances with Dudleys, and Daddy Dudley apparently made a stop at the reservation, Chubby Dudley, menacing Big Dick Dudley, and Silent Sign Guy Dudley. Now, the Dudleys ultimately pared down to the main group of Bubba Ray and Devon and Big Dick Dudley. Now, if Raven had this concept in his mind, he's even more of a genius than we thought, but the Dudleys took heel work all the way to an unprecedented level. They became heat magnets and incited wrestling fans into a fury. The Dudleys and other wrestlers would work the arena, but... The Dudleys would go outside of the ring, and this was something that really put the fear in a lot of wrestling fans who came to ECW events. Now, the people in charge of keeping law and order inside the arena was Stu Kaplan, who, when ECW was running shows that were in the Boston area, he actually was in charge of making sure that A, the Dudleys didn't get too crazy, and B, that the fans didn't get too incensed. He goes on to say, for a couple of shows, we actually had to do pat-downs at the front door when people were giving their tickets. We looked for knives and things like that. But it was okay if they wanted to bring in a hockey stick or a computer keyboard. Just nothing that we thought could get out of control and really hurt someone. So, how crazy is that to know that at the end of the day that the Dudley boys were going to be coming in and that you had to do pat-downs on fans because they weren't sure what was going to happen as far as were they legitimately going to try to hurt each other? But thankfully things didn't end up going that way. Now, the security knew that the Sandman was going to be coming through the audience. He knew that some of the wrestlers like Sabu were going to go out and jump uh, into the audience. They knew Rob Van Dam was going to be doing his moves that were going to be landing in the audience. All of that had already been pre-planned, predetermined, and already scheduled to have security where they were going to happen. However, the Dudleys took things to another level because they never really specifically outlined where they were going and what they were doing. So, moving on here, some new ECW talent um, became a little perturbed with Paul Heyman uh, in October of 1995 when they realized that these bounce checks are happening too frequently. So, the bounce checking was happening and more people were deciding that they were not going to stick around ECW anymore. Johnny Grunge and Rocco Rock were big stars in ECW, but both guys left for WCW and the WWF because they needed the money. 
So in a short period of time in this chapter, Shane Douglas leaves to become Dean Douglas. You lose Dean Malenko, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, Conan, Woman, who goes to leave to go to WCW, and Ian Rotten, who's going to go ahead and create his own promotion. There's so many moving pieces right now that it's getting very hard for Paul to be able to continue his promotion because it always seems like just when somebody gets white hot, they get scooped up by one of the other promotions and therefore is leaving him with more holes to fill. It becomes very, very difficult. Now, something else that became very, very popular, it had always been around, especially in the, in the 80s, but it became very popular during this time. The newsletter readers became big. Um, and they would also talk a lot about what was going on with the contracts of wrestlers, where they may be going, where they may not be going, where they may be signing. And one of those main guys was Dave Meltzer, and he would be one of the main reporters that would discuss what was happening inside the wrestling world. Now, ECW at this time was having a very, very difficult time with putting shows together and specifically putting matches on posters. And you're probably asking yourself, well, why is that? Well, because everybody kept coming and going. Paul realized that he needed to focus that ECW, the brand, was more important than any single individual wrestlers. But more losses continued to happen. After WrestleMania 1996, there was rumors, but those rumors end up being true, that... Mick Foley was going to be headed for the World Wrestling Federation shortly after WrestleMania. In the newsletters, fans were able to also write in as well. And one individual wrote in, Kathy Collins from Mount Laurel, New Jersey. She bemoaned the losses of Sabu, Benoit, Douglas, Malenko, and obviously now going to be Mick Foley. Now while all this was going on, Jim Cornette announced that he was closing Smoky Mountain Wrestling. The options for wrestlers and wrestling fans continued to shrink. Cornette and Heyman actually knew each other from years past because they were both photographers in the wrestling business. Both were very highly intelligent people who loved wrestling and had a great mind for it. Unfortunately, a lot of wrestlers were leaving for more money. Obviously, Cornette and Heyman did not have the abilities to go ahead and financially compensate these people. For wrestlers who worked for both Cornette and worked for Paul Heyman said they were completely two different minds. Trithy Smothers specifically went on to say, Cornette believed in traditional methods of psychology. What would get the best reaction out of fans? What was Paul's? Pushing the envelope, trying to get something out of fans that they had never gotten before. There was a lot of things that were interesting about wrestling, but you needed to keep it refreshing and exciting. That was Paul's belief. Tracy would go on to say that Cornette was more set in his ways. He was going to decide how it was going to be done, and that was it. Paul was different. Paul was open to ideas from other wrestlers. Cornette would have stuff planned out three or four months ahead of time, and Heyman, well, he would tinker and change things on a fly, and things would change from week to week. Smothers also said there were pros and cons for the way both guys did things, but at the end of the day... They're just two different people. Jim would run a show in Smoky Mountain with The Undertaker. People just wouldn't get it. The Undertaker was not somebody that the Southern Wrestling fans would understand. And that was a problem. Now, people in the wrestling business traditionally use the carny term marks to refer to the fans whose money made the business go round. Now, a mark is someone who is falling for the con. 
and the wrestling marks were people who believed in what they were seeing to the extent that they would buy tickets to see their heroes and heels square off. In the 1980s, they had seen an increasing prevalence of wrestling newsletters, which we mentioned before, which openly discussed the manipulated business that was wrestling. The result was a new breed of fans called the Smart Mark. Now, the Smart Mark is somebody who knows what's going on and they believe that they understand the insides of the business and that they cannot be swerved and that they have an upper hand on the traditional fan and that they get it. There's somehow of this belief that they're an upper level of a wrestling fan. But at the end of the day, wrestling is always going to be evolving, always going to be changing. And Paul decided that even though people wanted to call themselves smart marks and pretend that they knew what was going on or they thought they knew what was going on, that he was going to continue to swerve them even more, do things that he didn't think the fans would expect. This was Paul's way of counteracting the smart mark. Wrestling fans who called themselves, or at least believed that they were the smart marks, believed that they understood what was happening in the matches and that they themselves had an upper hand at knowing what was going on as opposed to the people sitting next to them. One fan in particular, John the Hat Guy Bailey, said that when the crowd would chant the You Fucked Up chants, they were not meant to be damning indictments. It was just another way that fans could yell and be a part of it. It wasn't malicious whatsoever. If you were a true fan, you had respect for all the guys, and fucking up was just easily forgiven, and it was just something that was fun to yell. Another fan, Mike Althal, said that while ECW fans could be brutal to performers slipping up in the ring, he was always glad to be part of the crowd and respected the effort in the ring that the veterans gave each and every time. However, Raven would go on to say something a little bit different. Raven said that many of the wrestlers did not have the reciprocal feelings for the fans, particularly ultra-critical fans in the ECW arena. Raven said, I love how these fans are being remembered fondly in all these nostalgic interviews. Oh, those were the greatest fans in the world. Well, when I got there in 1995, the guys hated the fans because the fans knew what was coming in their matches. And a lot of the boys were just not smart enough to get around that, Raven said. The boys used to bitch all the time about the Philadelphia fans. A lot of them hated going to Philadelphia. Terry Funk would go on to say, um, that not even the most respected veterans got free passes from the fans of ECW because wrestlers continuously had to up their ante for the expectation of what was next. Terry said, I was thrilled when I got uh, a chance to go out there and have a great match, but then the next guy had a great match, and there was so much pressure to follow the next guy. Everyone was out there killing themselves to put on a great show. You know, do you think I really enjoy doing backflips off the top rope at age 54? Hell no. A guy who was really respected was C.W. Anderson. He was one of ECW's hardest working performers from about 1999 till the company closed in 01. He said fans could be tough, but he learned to appreciate the challenge of putting a good match together. Even though ECW crowds were different than any other wrestling crowd before, even with their chance, I didn't have a big problem with it, C.W. said. I found that if I gave everything I had each night, those fans appreciated that I busted my ass. So we often hear about the ECW fans. We often hear about the very difficult and critical fans. And I guess it really depends on where you're coming from. Some of the fans would say things, I believe 
um, just to have fun with the show. I, I honestly believe that nobody meant any malice or nobody meant any ill will towards the, the wrestlers. Why would you even go to a show if you're just going to be full of piss and vinegar? I think it was just part of the culture. It was just part of what ECW cultivated, and it was a speak-your-own-mind type of environment. Well, ECW's expansion continued. The company set a record in December of 1995 when a show in Queens, New York, drew 1,285 fans with a record box office gate of $27,410. I think this is a testament of everything that Paul had to endure, whether or not he had a working relationship with both WWF and WCW as to be on retainer, to be able to be getting financially compensated. However, when you're getting compensated, you still have to give us these wrestlers when we want. Um, I think Paul succeeded and I think a lot of promotions and a lot of promoters would have would have failed and would have maybe even given up after so many people leave but that's the thing about Paul Paul continued to reinvent himself and he continued to find new ways to entertain his audience and I mean when you think about it at that time in 1995 a lot of the guys had left for him to be able to have a record setting crowd even though it's it's less than 1,300 fans and to make about $27,000 at the box office, that's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal for a company like that. Well, in February of 96, a TV show that some of you guys remember called A Current Affair ran a piece on ECW. Well, didn't really exactly paint the best picture of ECW. Three months later, not long after it aired, a Denver television station that carried ECW pulled it from its airwaves, citing viewer complaint over the levels of extreme violence. In the 1996 Wrestling Observer Newsletter, uh, Joey Styles actually uh, had an op-ed uh, about WWF's December 95 pay-per-view in which Bret Hart ended up a bloody mess in the main event against Davy Boy Smith. And he wrote, I give in your house the middle finger, Joey Styles wrote. How dare you refer to ECW as barbaric only to emulate us when your buy rates slide. So I think it's a very interesting concept here when it comes to the way that all the promotions are looked at from that part. WCW ends up firing... Uh, the Blacktop Bully, and they fired Dustin Rhodes for bleeding in a match on a pay-per-view earlier on in the year because they're getting away from blood. ECW decides to go ahead and embrace the hardcore violence aspect of it. Society decides to condemn ECW for doing it, but yet when the WWF chooses to do it, everything seems to be fine. I feel like there's a lot of hypocrisy when it comes to wrestling in general, not just necessarily in 1995, 1996, as it relates to our timeline here in the story, but in general. I feel like this chapter really kind of pulled back the covers on a lot of things that we may have known a little bit about, but maybe not everything. So just to recap, a mass exodus of ECW stars Shane Douglas is originally promised that Dean Douglas is going to be wildly successful. Vince McMahon lies to his face and to his wife's face. Paul Heyman loses a multitude of stars, yet still ends up turning out one of his biggest shows in 1995, and the news media starts covering wrestling a little bit more and deciding what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate to air on television. So that is Chapter 7. There's so many things that we covered here. I'm sure there are so many more things that can still be covered, but if you have any questions about what we talked about here in Chapter 7, by all means, hit me up on social media. You can reach me. I'm I am at Mike Freeland on Twitter. 
once again, catch us on our main show, Front Row Material, which drops 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time each and every Wednesday morning on the MLW Radio Network. And if you're looking to still follow along with us here on Overbooked, uh, <clears throat> the book club, don't tell Mikey, that uh, I highly recommend that you go out and you get this book. It is really, really good. Taz is not on the cover of it. I will openly admit that now. I was wrong. But it's a good book uh, nonetheless, and we are going to be hopefully covering more books going down the road as well, and I am excited to kind of tease. I don't know if I should do this or not, but I'm going to anyway. There may be some additional programming that I uh, am going to be working with as well. Uh, to maybe enhance the ECW experience for everyone involved. But details of that will be forthcoming. All right, guys, I have enjoyed it. We will catch you in Chapter 8. But until then, I am Mike Freeland, and this has been Overbooked on the MLW Radio Network.